My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. How many of you have had someone in your life somewhere along the way that said, I used to be a Christian, but I don't believe anymore? Yeah. And maybe you pressed in a little bit, and when you heard their story, you heard some kind of hurt or, or injustice or difficulty that led to a profound sense of disillusionment with God. Maybe you heard something like, if God exists, if Jesus were really alive, then this, whatever this is, would not have happened. You see, if you're going to build a life, a life of faith, at some point along the way, you're going to run into a very real dilemma, a dilemma that goes something like this. Faith is necessary to endure hardship and faith is developed by enduring hardship. Do you hear the dilemma in that, right? I need faith to get through it and yet I only get faith by going through it. So which comes first? And the answer to that is yes. Yes. It's a dilemma. It's a very real dilemma. And on top of that dilemma, I have a question for us to consider in light of this teaching series we're going through as we walk through this book of Acts and we're learning what it means to be witnesses for the good news of Jesus. A question to consider. What will provide the best witness in a world that questions authenticity and thrives on skepticism? That's the world we live in. So what would be the best witness for the gospel? And it's here that I think a little or perhaps a lot of how we answer that question betrays how much what we might call the prosperity gospel has infiltrated our thinking. I mean, we may not say this out loud, but if we looked at the evidence in our life, we believe the best witness for the gospel is a life put together, a life that looks good. I mean, again, we may not say it, but our life might say hey, look at me. Don't you believe God is good because I live a comfortable, suburban, middle-class American life, you know, where I have a nice home and a well-manicured lawn and my 1.8 kids are both uh, good students, you know, straight-A students and star athletes. I drive a late-model, you know, expensive, eco-friendly car. I have a health club membership. And I and our family, we, we take wonderful vacations together, which we let you know about through our, our carefully edited Instagram photos showing us with our well-put-together outfits that all match, and we have our all perfectly straight white teeth that cost thousands of dollars to make. Okay, you may have your version of it, 
but does our life, don't, don't, we, don't we often say, wouldn't you believe in our Jesus because look how life my, well my life is put together. Now, as much as I would like for a comfortable, carefree life to be the best display of the gospel, I think we'd all agree that what makes a better, more compelling witness is a life lived by faith when there is no evidence for faith seemingly present. In other words, a life lived by faith through the hardship, through the difficulty, through the suffering, especially chosen difficulty, chosen suffering for the sake of the gospel. We also encounter this unwelcome but important truth of a faith refined and displayed through, the, through suffering when we read the Bible. In fact, it's one of the themes of the story that we're going to look at today as we arrive at the second part of Acts chapter 4. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. Pastor James, if you're here last week, you know he left off in the middle of chapter 4. And and, and chapter 4 recorded a change for that first church in Jerusalem. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, life was going pretty well for that early church. The early disciples were popular. They were the next big thing in Jerusalem. They had favor with all the people. Peter got up to preach a couple of times and thousands of people put their trust in Jesus. And then those those early believers, they had great relationships together. They shared meals with one another. They took care of each other. So that was said, no one had need among them. Life was good. I can almost hear them saying, Jesus was right. His kingdom is awesome. We have received the Holy Spirit among us and look at how good it is. Isn't that amazing? And then chapter four arrives and Peter and John are arrested and their lives were threatened by the powerful leaders of the day who told them to cease and desist all that Jesus nonsense. In other words, starting in chapter four, we see the church face opposition and hardship for the first time, but certainly not the last time. And their response is noteworthy. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4. It says, As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders, those are the religious leaders of the day, had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. Their first impulse was to pray. Rather than cowering or complaining, these early disciples returned their attention upward. And what we have next is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. And I don't think that's an accident. I think the Holy Spirit, through the author Luke, wants us to know that that early church was founded upon, and indeed every church since, is founded upon the foundation of prayer. And just to note, before we dive into the prayer... One way, if you want to know how to pray, maybe you're new to this relationship with God, you're, you, maybe you're new to a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you're just wondering how it is that you pray. What does it look like? A good place to start is to read the prayers that are in the Bible, prayers like this one, uh, that, and, and we, you let them shape you. So instead of just reading it, instead of just studying it, pray it along with them. And so that's what I invite you to do this morning. As I read this prayer, pray it with them. Bring your current hardships, bring any place where you're feeling a sense of opposition or a sense of a suffering or difficulty and pray along with them as I read this. And so let's, let's see what they had to pray. He says, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor, David, your servant, saying... 
Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And we might add, amen. Amen. So as we consider this prayer, I want you to first note what they didn't pray for. They didn't pray for justice. They didn't pray for a change in their circumstances. They didn't even pray for protection. In fact, they barely asked for anything. So two important themes I see emerge from this that can help shape our prayer life and and understand what it means to live as a witness. The first thing we note is that their prayer is God-centered. It's God-centered, not me-centered. They're praying to God about God. God, you're this, you're this, you're this. The ironic thing when it comes to prayer is that when our prayers sound like, God, I need this, I need this, I need this, our eyes are actually on ourselves and not on God. And because our eyes are on ourselves, we're not likely to get our needs met. When we focus on God instead of our needs, our needs are actually more likely to get met. So from the very beginning of this prayer, these early disciples are clinging to the reality that God is central, not their, not their needs, not their circumstances. And fascinatingly, the Greek word they start with, it's translated sovereign Lord. The Greek word is despotis, despotis, okay? It's only used three times in all the New Testament. The, the more common word translated Lord that you'll see in the New Testament is kurios. It's a different word. That's why, it's, that's why they're right to translate it sovereign Lord. Do you see an English word hidden in that Greek word? Despot. Okay, in English, that has a completely negative context. In Greek, it could have gone either way. But what it does say is that this is a, it's, a, it's somebody who has absolute power and control. Absolute. And so by the, when the disciples were praying this, they were acknowledging an absolute unconditional devotion and servitude before this God. They acknowledge God not only as sovereign Lord, but also as creator. He designed and crafted everything, including each and every person, for his good purposes. Then they pull in Psalm 2. That's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit through our ancestor David. And then everything in the quote here is Psalm 2. They're doing what I recommended we do. They're praying the prayers of the Bible. They prayed their prayers of their Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament. And the Psalms are the worship book of the Old Testament and of the Bible. If you want to learn how to pray, you need to spend time in the Psalms like they did. And so basically, by bringing this psalm and the theme of Psalm 2 is that evil is given some freedom in this world, but not ultimate freedom. God is behind it all, working everything for his good plan. In other words, this prayer is not merely positive thinking, 
They're readily acknowledging the full extent of evil's power and presence and purpose while still clinging to the the fact that God has ultimate rule. Then their prayer focuses in on the one central example in all of human history, and that is the crucifixion. In verse 27, they acknowledge that the powers of the day seemed to be in charge when Jesus was crucified. But then in verse 28, they're saying, no, wait a minute. God's purpose is going on behind all of that. They're basically saying, yes, we realize what a horrible thing it was when Jesus was killed. There's nothing good about crucifixion. But we realize that if he hadn't been killed, we wouldn't have access to God. Our sins wouldn't be cleansed. There was a massive, brilliant goodness going on in that horrible act of crucifixion. You can hear the echoes all through scriptures, all the way back to Genesis, where, the, where Joseph said, what evil meant for harm, you worked for good. Their prayer was God-centered. That's the first theme. The second theme I'd like us to pay attention to is that they st- saw their story through the lens of God's story. After mostly focusing their prayer on God, they turn their attention to their circumstances. And when they do, they interpret their story, their circumstances, through the lens of God's story. Which means when they finally, finally got around for asking for something, it was aligned with God's purposes and priorities. Specifically, they seek strength and courage in the face of their suffering. Not the removal of their suffering. And then they ask God to enable them and empower them in the face of their suffering. You see, when people say, I was a Christian, but then these awful things happened and I just gave up because I can't believe in a God who would let these things happen to me, it's a sign that they weren't really serving God for God. They were serving God for themselves because when the benefits were gone, they saw no need for God. Now, if that sounds harsh, maybe you think of it this way. Let's say, uh, let's say you're living a great life. You've got a great job. You have all the money you need. Your health is good. You're active. And you have a friend, your best friend. You like to do everything with this friend. You go on trips together. You make memories together. You spend all your time together. Now, you pay for most of that time that you spend together because you have all the money and your friend doesn't have a lot of money, but you don't mind because you really love your friend and you enjoy your friend and you have great times together. Now, let's say the worst of the worst happens. You lose your job, you, you reach the end of your money, your health takes a turn for the worse. What would you think if your friend ghosted you when that happened? Kicked you to the curb? You'd think, they're no friend at all. They were only in it for the benefits. You'd be pretty indignant about that. How much more so when somebody says, if it's not paying off for me to serve God, why should I believe in him? My friends, God is the most wonderful, beautiful, generous friend in the entire universe. He's worth our time, our attention, our praise. On his terms. On his terms. That means seeing our story through the lens of his story, no matter our circumstances. This reminds me of Eugene Peterson's 
book on prayer. It's a really good book on prayer. It's called Answering God. He actually looked, uses it by looking at the Psalms and how they teach us how to pray. In his book, Peterson invites us to think about learning to pray like a child learns to talk. You and I wouldn't know how to talk unless somebody had talked to us first. If somebody hasn't, didn't talk to us first, we would only babble. Blah, 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 blah. It would mean nothing. It's the same way with prayer. God has spoken and revealed himself in his word, the Bible. Prayer is not talking to God as much as it is answering God according to what he has already said in the Bible. God has told us his story. He has revealed massive amounts about himself. He has poured out his heart to us. True prayer responds to what God has already said. Otherwise, we're just babbling. Here in Acts 4, the disciples aren't just talking to God. They're answering God. Of course they're scared. Of course they are. They wouldn't have prayed for courage and strength if they weren't scared. But they find confidence for their small story by rooting it in the big story God's been telling since the beginning of time. A story that one day will culminate in a cosmic reunion where God promises to make all things new to take away all tears, to take away all suffering. It will all be redeemed, he promises. So here's how I would summarize the disciples' prayer. He says, we're going to think about God until it calms us down. Then we're going to talk to God until it makes us fearless. Oh, that our prayers would be like that, where we think about God and who he is until we calm down because we realize he's got it. And then we're going to talk to him about what do we do next until we're fearless and ready to go for it. May our prayers be like that. And then moving on in verse 31, we see God respond. We see God respond. He says, after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a phrase we've seen a, a number of times and we'll see it again in the book of Acts. It goes back to in chapter 2 when we first heard this, the idea they were filled with the Spirit. You might be wondering what that means because there's been a lot of confusion amongst churches with that phrase. It might, you might even think of it, well, they must have been empty beforehand because it says they were filled, but yet the prayer they just prayed kind of seems to indicate otherwise. So what happened when they were filled with the Spirit? I think it might be helpful to think of it this way. Let's say you're married. I know a number of you in the room are, but let's just say everyone here, you're married. If your circumstances change, are you married or not? still married? If your feelings change, are you still married? The reality is yes. I mean, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't matter what's going on in you. You're married. Now, when you're locked in each other's arms in a passionate embrace, and it seems like the whole world has come to a complete stop and love is the most powerful force in the universe. Are you any more or less married than the night before when your spouse's snoring kept you up all night? No. It's just that when you're in the embrace, you're feeling the love of the relationship. My friends, I think that's what this idea of the fullness of the spirit, that's what they felt at that point. That's what we sometimes feel but not all the time necessarily. And it's not something we can arrange by doing some sort of formula or something like that. As, as Jesus said in John chapter three, the spirit is like the wind. It blows where it wishes. I emphasize this because sometimes we get into the trap of thinking as Christians, we should always be walking around on some kind of emotional high. 
the level of our emotions and even the purity of our convictions does not determine the status of our relationship with God. We have an objective basis for our standing before God and it's based on what Jesus has done, not on our current emotional state. So lastly then, let's see how the story concludes based on their God-centered, spirit-empowered prayer life. Picking up again in verse 31. They then preached the word of God with boldness. All the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. Because those who owned land, because for there were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. In other words, when they proclaimed good news boldly, they lived in unity, they gave generously. That's how I would sum that up. And notice there was no change in circumstance. They still faced the same thing they had faced before their prayer. But in light of their focus on, on God and his greatness, in light of the focus of what God did through the, at the cross with Jesus, they could not help but proclaim good news. And, and the petty squabbles that seemed to want to get in between, bah, who cares? And in light of who this God is, how could we not give generously? He owns everything. When, when we give, we're just acting like he does. We have nothing, yet he gave everything. How could we not act the same? And you know, I don't think it's an accident this story ends with financial generosity. Because the primary reason we don't give money away is because we're scared. I mean, sure, greed gets in there, absolutely. But I think more often than anything else, it's, it's, it's a sense of fearfulness because we're looking to money for our security. We're clinging to it. But when God is great in our hearts, we don't need to cling to our investments or our savings or our stuff for security. He's big enough to handle it all. He is handling it all. He's the one who makes us secure. That's why radical generosity is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus. Radical generosity is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus. And so on that topic, I want to I emphasize a couple of things we see in the story. And then I want to make I a practical application. So the first thing I want to emphasize in this story is that it is one snapshot. It's one snapshot of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus with our finances. Okay, the Bible has a lot to say about money. Jesus had a lot to say about money. And we can summarize what the Bible says in two words. Two words the Bible uses, tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings. Now, if you're not familiar with those words, the tithe is the first 10%. That's what it meant. It means we give the first 10% of everything we earn, we give back to God. And it's an act of faith and trust. It's similar to like going to the gym and doing repetitions or being on the Stairmaster or wherever you like to spend that time. You are doing that to make your physical body healthy. Or maybe you're on a diet, you're watching what you eat because you want to make your physical body healthy. The tithe is like that for our spiritual hearts our spiritual bodies, in that sense of it gives us strength to trust God for our security rather than our money. So we give the first 10% out the door. I know I got a lot of bills. I don't know how I'm going to make it to the end of the month, but I'm going to give to you first and I'm going to trust you to provide. That's what the tithe is. 
When the tithe is brought to the church, then the, then the church leaders can help us be all that we need to be as a church. It, we do practical things with it, like care for this building where we can come and worship, hiring specialized staff, uh, being, having, funding local and global ministries together. That's what we do with the tithe money. So as we tithe as a church, so the church can be all that we've been called to be. Okay, that's how that works. But that's not where giving ends. That's actually where giving begins. That trust, that basic trust. Now, offerings, that's I think what we see here in, the, in this picture. Offerings are kind of above and beyond the tithe, spontaneous yeah, reactions or responses to need, especially to the least, the last, and the lost. We see that here. They sold things in order to give to those in need. That's what we see here. And that's that part of giving where it's basically, we are so enamored with God and how generous he has been. How could we not meet these needs and see what God does in us and through us as we do? So that's the one, one highlight I wanted to make there is this idea. This is one snapshot of what the Bible says about how we are disciples of Jesus with our money. The second thing I want to emphasize is that they gave their money to the apostles for distribution. Did you see that in the story? And I emphasize that because we live in a day and age where formal institutions and their leaders are increasingly distrusted. We live in a skeptical age, including with churches. I regularly hear well-meaning Christians who say, I don't give my money to the church because I don't know, those church leaders... I don't know if I can trust them. And so I'm going to research organizations and give to things that I'm passionate about. And hear me, I am not against that. I am all for that. I do that. I give, other, I give to other organizations, absolutely. But what I am saying is the motivation behind that, a distrust of the leaders of the church. That's part of our culture that we live in, to distrust leaders. My friends, part of trusting God is trusting the imperfect leaders he puts in our lives. It's part of it. Now, I'm not saying check your intelligence at the door and blindly trust. No. But if sunrise is your church, then give to the church so that your spiritual leaders, our spiritual leaders can help us, lead us to be the kind of church that God has called us to be. So now I want to invite you to put this story into practice in a tangible way. As you likely know, Sunrise is known in our community, in Hillsboro, uh, as a generous partner, especially to the least, the last, and the lost. City leaders come to us. They see us as partners in serving those that are in need in our community. We do a lot of that through our operating budget, where our tithes go. We also have a completely separate fund. It's called our Mercy Fund, of which 100% of it goes to meet needs in our church and mostly outside of our church in partners, partnership with our city. That money is distributed by our mercy coordinator, Heather Brown. If you don't know Heather, you ought to meet her. She's actually the longest tenured member of our staff team, including longer than Pastor James. And she will let you know that. (laughs) Heather is wise and discerning and generous and merciful on our behalf. And so I asked her just this year, How much has been given away? Over $53,000 from us has been given away, 100% of it, to the needs in our community. So I said, well, what are some of the things that we've provided? So she she let me know. She says, we've paid rent bills, utility bills. We've provided emergency hotel accommodations, bus passes, grocery gift cards, eyeglasses, beds, coats. 
We've paid medical bills and provided medical, emergency medical needs, crisis counseling, food bags for DHS to give to families that come to them in crisis. We, we host funeral ceremonies. This is one of my favorite things. For people who have no church of their own. We pay for it and provide it. We even paid for birth certificates and IDs so people could find employment. Now, that's what we've done to the, so far this year. You probably know the holidays are on the horizon, right? And that's when the needs seem to be more readily accessible. We have more opportunities to be generous. In fact, we'll nearly double that between now and the end of the year. And we'll do like a Thanksgiving meal. That's one of the things we do. We provide gifts and meals at Christmas time for those who can't afford it. Just to give you a scope of that, last year we, we provided for Christmas, Christmas gifts and meals to over 175 children and family in our community. So here's where I'm going to meddle a little bit and get really specific. I don't just want you to cheer for that. I want you to be involved in that. Jesus doesn't need any fans. He wants followers. Get in it. Get in it. So in a tangible way, what I want everybody to do here, everybody can do it except those in the front row, uh, reach forward in, your, in the chair back in front of you and pull out one of the giving envelopes. They're there every week. You guys aren't off the hook. You can reach behind you. <laughs> pull out one of the giving envelopes right now. Take a look at it. They're there every week. You can use it to give every week. If you put money or check in there, it goes to mainly to our tithes. That's our general fund. But you can designate money like to our mercy fund. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do today. I would love for everybody in the room to give something to our mercy fund so that we could just blow that fund out of the water and have it be overflowing so that, so that Heather on our behalf can be generous to our community. Now, as soon as I say that, I know there are a number of objections in the room, but some of you may have a simple objection, and that is you don't carry cash or a checkbook anymore. I don't either. A lot of us don't even carry wallets anymore because we can do everything on this, right? Okay, well, did you know you can give on that too? And so just so you know, and that's how we can do this, I want to walk through this because this is actually really helpful. You can do this anytime, anywhere you can give. And so I just want to walk through. So pull out your phones if you don't have cash. You know, pull out your phones and, and go pull up a browser and go to isunrise.com and you'll see a screen that looks like this. Okay, our regular homepage, things like that. See these three little lines up there. I'm told it's called a hamburger. I didn't know that. Those only those that are techs, I guess, techie knows that. But So you click on that, and it brings up our menu. And down at the bottom of the menu, there's a give option. You click on that, and it brings up our giving page. A little bit of vision about what that means, as well as you notice three different congregations. You may not even know that that exists. We have our Hillsboro campus. That's what's going on here. We have our Spanish-speaking congregation, meets on Sunday afternoons. Uh, we have our Light My Way, which is our ex-prisoner ministry, incredible ministry. Happens on Saturday afternoons and evening, evening now here in, as well. But I want you to click on the Hillsboro campus, and if you've never done this before, the first thing it'll ask you to do is verify your phone number. I do need to give you a heads up on this. I learned this in our first gathering today. If a whole bunch of you do that, verify your number at the same time, there's going to be a delay. <laughs> it's going to be a delay. We, we bogged their system down this morning. And because you have to get a phone, you got to get a number texted back to you. You know how that works. And it took a little while. So if it doesn't happen right away, it's not broken. You just got to wait because there's a bunch of people doing it at the same time. Okay, so you verify your phone number, address, email, that kind of thing. It takes you to the giving screen, which looks like this. Uh, I put a $50 in because that's what I did this week. 
gave it above, and above our tithe. Just, I, did, I wanted to do something I'm asking you to do. Notice you can give one time. You can set up recurring giving. Okay, this is something that I've done and, and many of you have done to where our tithe, that first 10%, happens every month. That way I'm not even thinking about it. It's just going as an act of faith. And so one-time gift we're doing above and beyond here. This little button right here is actually a roller bar button. You click on it and it defaults to the tithe, but now you can make it to mercy. So I'd invite you to do that. And you click next and it takes you to the give screen. Now here's where you can choose your paying method. I am the administrative pastor here, so I do want to highlight the fact that as much as you want, I'll use, you, give however you can. So given your credit card, awesome. Given a debit card, okay. Just know that if you give with a credit card or a debit card, 3% of that doesn't come to us. It goes to the bank, to the credit card company. If you give using your bank account information, it's only 1%, so we actually get 2% more. If you actually set up online bill pay from your bank, we don't get charged anything. Now, $50, you pay with your credit card, that's a buck and a half. Okay, no big deal. Just understand that this year, $30,000 is what we have budgeted for bank fees. Just to give you a scope. So give however you give. Give here, give this way, awesome and everything. But as you think about giving overall, you might want to think about that as well. Okay, notice I did not put my credit card number in here. I do not want you to be generous on my behalf. You put yours in there, and when you finish that out, you get a confirmation slide there. I did give through my credit union there. That's what set up that. And boom, you're done. You're giving it. So whether you give by cash or check or card or whatever, give something today. And by the way, if this is your first time at Sunrise, we don't always do this. This is actually quite rare. But, but we do believe in being disciples to Jesus in every aspect of our lives, including our money. So occasionally we'll talk about this. But here, what we're getting at is this idea of living as that early church and living as witnesses financially. Imagine what we can do. There'll be about a thousand of us here today. If every one of us gave $50, I know some of you can give more, some of you can't give that, that's okay. But if everybody of us gave $50, that would be $50,000. We would double what we've done thus far this year and have had that available forever to be generous on our behalf through the end of the year. Imagine that. Imagine that. Between now and the end of the year, Heather has $50,000 to help us display the good news of Jesus as a church to our community. So all that being said, I want to conclude today by returning our focus where it should be, and that is on Jesus. I absolutely want us to be generous, but I wanted us to be that way because we're so enamored with who Jesus is and what he has done that we cannot help to do what he did, which was give sacrificially on our behalf. So I actually want to draw attention back to verse 31. In verse 31, we see that the meeting place shook. Some kind of earthquake happened. When you read through the Bible, the earthquakes are often associated with the presence of God. So here you have these believers. They're putting their trust in Jesus who died and rose again. And by the way, when he died and rose again, both those events were also accompanied by the earth shaking. In Matthew 27, when Jesus cried out and gave up his spirit, the earth shook, it says. In Matthew 28, on the first Easter Sunday, an earthquake rolled the stone away, and then Jesus arose from the dead, forever conquering sin and death. Through his life and his death, and his resurrection, Jesus is saying to each and every one of us, I was shaken so that you can be unshakable. I took what you deserve 
so that you could receive my lavish love and live from that. No matter your circumstances. My friends, I don't have a good explanation for suffering. I don't. What I do know is that we can have confidence when we put our trust in Jesus and invite him, the one who is called the suffering servant, when we invite him to accompany us in our suffering, we find that he can be trusted. Would you pray with me? And I do thank you, Spirit of God, that you come and you fill Maybe this morning some of us got that fresh taste and we are alive with a sense of your presence. Maybe others of us are are feeling empty and are still asking and waiting. Either way, would you give us confidence in your presence? Would you strengthen us that we might boldly proclaim your good news in a skeptical world, that we might live in unity together and love each other well? And that we might give lavishly and generously from what you've given us. We do that because you have given to us first and you have given to us best. And we trust that in Jesus' name. Amen.